Baxi's musical podcast. Okay, I'm warning you now. You're going to have to bear with me on this one because I'm about to geek out with one of my all-time favorite drummers. As a half-rate drummer myself with limited skill and coordination, I cannot begin to tell you how many times I've gone to YouTube just to watch a bunch of guys play drums. I love that stuff. I find it relaxing. You know, some people resort to booze or edibles or meditation. I prefer to watch dudes hit things with sticks. And while there are a million great drummers out there, there are a handful of people whose diversity and talent are so well documented and recognized that they keep getting hired by some of the greatest artists in the world. These are musicians that keep popping up time and time again on many of your favorite songs by some of your favorite artists on many of your favorite records, whether it be for session work or to go out on tour or to become a permanent member of Grammy award-winning bands. These guys get hired because their work is impeccable, no matter what kind of music they're hired to play. Among those people are my guest today, drummer Simon Phillips. Now get a load of this. Since the 1970s, Simon Phillips has played with Jeff Beck, Frank Zappa, The Pretenders, Jimmy Page, Peter Gabriel, The Who, Toto, Judas Priest, Big Country, Whitesnake, Tears for Fears, Asia, Joe Satriani, John Anderson of Yes, and a whole hell of a lot more than that. In fact, that barely even scratches the surface of what Simon Phillips has played a part in. What's even more incredible is that he started at the age of 12. Simon Phillips is a guy who I could have talked to for hours, and we could have talked about gear, open-handed playing, paradiddles, ratamacues, and ostinatos. Unfortunately, we didn't have that kind of time. But even talking to the guy for just a handful of minutes was pretty damn cool, no matter how much time he had to spare. Simon has just released a new live album with longtime collaborator Derek Sherinian called Sherinian Phillips Live. And as you might expect, it's fantastic. This is my conversation with the incredible Simon Phillips on Baxi's Musical Podcast. Good to see you. I see you too, yeah. It's such a pleasure to talk to you. I'll tell you about that in, in, in a second here. But I, I've been listening to the new live record, the Sheridan Phillips live record. It's it's so good. And and you've been playing with Derek for a while. He's been called the, the, the keyboard equivalent to Eddie Van Halen. I mean, kind of a high praise for a keyboard player. It certainly is, yes. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, Derek is, is very special. I mean, he has... He has a, um, a very distinctive sound, and I think a lot, a lot of that is to do with his, uh, you know, his synth playing and his uh, lead lead synth and solo synth uh, playing. He has a very distinctive sound, and uh, I think that's one of the things he 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 aspired to be a kind of the guitar player of the synth, but in the in the rock world, he's a huge fan of Jan Hammer. Yeah, and Jan was probably the first person that foxed people because people thought he was a guitar player. <laughs> well, I was going to say that when I'm, when I'm listening to the album, I'm like, well, wait a minute. Are, are those keyboards or are those guitars? And it's, yeah. it's him, yeah. and it's really, it's really remarkable. To oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But that, you know, that's, that's his thing, and uh, yeah. I think it's a well-owned, you know, well-owned title. Well, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a great live album. And, you know, sometimes live albums are like a hit-or-miss affair, but you guys just sound so great together. And, and, and 
and your drumming is like it's so legendary. And the reason why, like I said, I want to tell you about why I, I'm so excited to talk about it. When I was like 14, 15 years old, I was uh, I, I was, took drum lessons, and uh, I never got to the point where I was good. But I remember being in the music store, and they would have these these free Tama catalogs. And if you go to the back of the catalog, they had always had the pictures of the guys who you know were playing Tama. So it was like you know Neil Peart, uh, you know Phil Rudd, you know Billy Cobham, and then Simon Phillips. And I remember thinking, I want to be that guy. I want to be that guy with that big giant green kit. And when I tried to explain the importance of having that to my parents, they didn't, uh, they didn't buy into it. And, and there was a great oh, yeah. deal of, great deal of hesitation. Yeah. So to talk to you is like, it's, it's a real thrill because I've been, I literally have been, you know, following you around since I was, uh, since I was 14, 15 years old. Wow. Fantastic. Thank you. I mean, you, um, you started your interest in drums at a much earlier age than most. Tell me about how you contracted the contagious illness of drumming. Yeah, I mean, my uh, father was a, a, a band leader. He had a Dixieland dance band, and he used to rehearse at the house. And I'd seen the band a few times. I guess I was kind of two two years old, around that age, uh, but able to to kind of get about, you know, to walk. And I, I do remember seeing the band once, and these shiny brass instruments you know the tenor the baritone um i do have a vision of a of a drummer somewhere but he was kind of at the back so i couldn't really see the drum kit it wasn't wasn't apparent and then i guess a little bit later there was another rehearsal with a new drummer and my father must have asked my mom can we rehearse in the living room because we need more space and also the piano was in the living room so um uh she said yeah of course and so he turned the band round. So when you walk in the door, the first instrument you saw was the drum kit. And I just literally bumped into this lovely Ludwig drum kit, and that was it. <laughs> I think uh, when any kid starts to show interest in drums, it's every parent's worst nightmare. Like, they, they did their, your parents try to tell you, hey, can we try, like, uh, something a little quieter, like a guitar or harmonica or something that was a little bit more accommodating with space and a little bit uh, more yeah. accommodating to noise? Yeah, a little less disturbing. Um, amazingly enough, uh, I was lucky that you know, the house was big enough that I could be in the living room with by the piano with a drum kit, and uh, my dad's office was way at the other end, so he never got disturbed. And my mom was all for it. My my dad didn't really want me to be a musician, frankly. He'd had you know many years of the business basically, but but my mom was was very encouraging. Yeah. So. I, I was lucky in that way that I could play pretty much any time I wanted uh, around school, of course. And I think that was it. I was able to play along to, to records, and that's how I learned. Unlike most kids uh, your age, though, I mean, at, at a young, very young age, you started to play on a professional level. By the time you're you know, 12, 13 years old, you've already you've been, you've had paid gigs. You're, you're, getting, you've been, you're not that far away from recording for the very first time. How did you manage to progressed to that part where you know you're you're now a professional drummer at the age of 12 um i would uh, so i grew up playing uh, a lot to my dad's music so i knew the music very well i also knew the style very well the reason that i ended up in the band was around 1969 there were not many drummers in london that even wanted to play that old-fashioned 1930s style of playing 
they wanted to play like Alvin Jones, Tony Williams. Uh, and uh, aside from the session guys, which would stay in London, they were great. I mean, they were wonderful players and they knew how to adapt. But the 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 kind of the the next echelon of, of of players who were like gigging musicians, they you know they they weren't that interested. And 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 my dad used to get so pissed off, and he'd come back really angry. And again, it was another night of bloody drama. This bloody drama that you know. And my mom just got fed up with it, and she said, "There's a perfectly good drama in this house." And they had an argument, you know. And uh, he said, "What are we talking? It's only twelve years old." <laughs> And he said, yes, but he can play and he can play your music. And so my dad acquiesced and he said, well, let's give him a go. <laughs> and uh, I had to, you know, there was a bit of shuffling around because I was going to a, a boarding, like to a private school, prep school, um, and they wouldn't allow me to travel away to, 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 to do gigs. So I had to be taken out of that school a year early and enrolled in, a, in a, 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 another type of school close to home. And it was a hell of an of an adjustment. Uh, I ended up going, I only stayed at that school for two terms because it just was not working. They managed to find a school which was actually much nearer because there was somebody there that was a big, big fan of ballroom dancing and made contact to my dad somehow. I don't, I don't really know how this all went down because I was too young, um, but I did meet the guy and they enrolled me in this school and they were very clever. They said, let's put it on a concert. So my dad did a concert. I mean, when I look back at it now, I mean, he made a lot of, uh, he gave up a lot. I mean, he 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 would, I can't think of the word right now, but he he made it possible to, to have a gig at that school, which probably couldn't pay what he would normally get for his band. But he did it because he wanted them to really understand that I am a professional musician and and uh, I need to be able to leave school way early go and do a gig and then come back to school way late because <laughs> we <laughs> we would get back at three or four o'clock in the morning and I need to sleep so I'd go to school in the afternoon and he he wanted to make that very clear <laughs> and so we did this we did this concert or we did it it was a dance actually so that meant all the teachers that were at the at the dance saw that there's this 12 year old kid on drums and doing a professional job understanding that okay all right this is a a very unique scenario um we're gonna we, we understand there was only two teachers that didn't dig it and didn't dig me at all and uh oh it was rough but but the rest <laughs> of the school were great the kids were great um it, it was very unusual, you know, for uh, a, a, a school kid that has to get up in the middle of a class and goes, excuse me, miss, or excuse me, sir, um, I've got to leave. I've got a gig in Hull tonight <laughs> or a gig in Birmingham or Manchester. Yeah. And they said, okay, yeah, make sure to do your homework and we'll see you, you know, uh, next week or whatever it was. And I'd say bye to, the, to my friends, you know, who had made. And they said, yeah, have a good gig. You know, they didn't really understand what it was. It's so incredible to me that like, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, me at, at 12 years old, I think my bedtime was like 8.30 at night. <laughs> so it's a totally different, uh, I mean, it had to just be such a, a unique way of, of growing up. I mean, you know, most kids by the age of 14, 15 years old haven't figured out what they were going to do for a living. And it sounds like, you know, this was almost destined for you at a very 
young age, like, you know, what, oh. what else could you possibly have done at that point, but continue to play music? Exactly. I mean, I was just, but my, my watch had years on it. I said, <laughs> well, I've got five years left, you know, three years left before I can, you know, do this professionally. But um, no, I knew that that's exactly what I was going to do. Um, and they were long days. I'd go to school in the morning, you know, 8am or something. Then I'd have to come back uh, around, let's say two, pack the drum kit up, put on a dinner suit, you know, a suit with bow tie and um, load up the car, drive to wherever it was, maybe three, four or five hours or something set up. And the gig was a four hour gig, two breaks. Wow. So we'd finish around midnight and I, I was beat. I mean, you know, 12, 13, 14 year old. And uh, yeah, there were times where it was uh, it was pretty difficult, actually. Yeah. By the time you get into your 20s, all of a sudden you start getting regular session work. And then all of a sudden you're joining bands with, you know, Brian Eno and Phil Manzanera with uh, 801. And you're playing with, you know, Judas Priest and Jack Bruce and Frank Zappa. That's an awful lot of work jammed into a very small span of time. Would you say that was uh, indicative of the way you were playing and the diversity of way you were playing? Or was it just the time when in the mid seventies, when there was just so much work available to you? Yeah. I mean, it was a very different time. If you wanted to make a demo or record, you had to go into a studio and you had to hire musicians. There was no other way of doing it. So yeah. actually uh, 16 was when my father, he died very suddenly in the band. I had to uh, disband the band and then, I was kind of like going, hmm, now what? And then just a few months later, uh, I was very lucky to get a uh, the the to to do the um, uh, the London West End show of Jesus Christ Superstar. Uh, I did an audition and I got the gig. So that's kind of where it started, 1973, and it started by people in the cast that wanted to make a record, but they had to make a demo first in order to get a record deal. And they would invite me to go and play. So I'd turn up with a drum kit to this small four-track studio in uh, Dean Street or wherever the hell it was. What What's that street? Um, I, I, I Mayfair. Mayfair Street, maybe. And um, it's where a lot of demo studios were. And um, I'd already had a few years of recording experience. So... I knew the, and, and, and I'd been living, well, not living, but but visiting studios since I was six years old. Yeah. So the environment was was not frightening at all, wasn't nervous, red light didn't bother me, you know, because I I was so used to the the environment of, of a recording studio. And a lot of people do have a problem with that red light going on, and they kind of oh, seize up. For and two years, it, yeah. absolutely, yeah. And yeah, I'd meet a bass player, I'd meet a guitar player, and they're all older than me, at least 10 years older than me. And they're looking at me going, um, can this kid play, you know? And of course we start and I get a, a you know, sometimes there'd be chart or sometimes you just learn the song, you know, because in those days we were making the demo. So how's the song go? The artist takes an acoustic guitar and it goes, it goes like this, ding, 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 <laughs> write, you know, something down or maybe not. I mean, I didn't actually write much down. I, I could remember it all. And then we play the track and bass player and a guitar player looking at each other going, huh? <laughs> you know? And then I get, you know, they get, they get my number, you know, give me your number. And then, and that's how it works. You know, suddenly my phone's ringing and can you do a session? At blah, blah, blah. Yeah, sure. And all of a sudden that's what happened. We had so much work 
because of the 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 time and the environment everybody was was wanting to make music make records right and there were no machines there, there were no uh sequences there were no home tape recorders and most people couldn't afford a Rebox or or a reel-to-reel machine, you know, right. which, which would have been stereo or, or four-track actually, but not the four-track that not a multi-track. It's uh, two channels that way. Turn the tape over, <laughs> two channels that way. That's how it was. It was a very lucky time. So you know, uh, I started playing with with Phil Manzanera. I think that first album I did, played with him, was uh, it was 1975. So I was only 18. I mean, there's so much I want to ask you about, and I know we don't have a you know a whole lot of time, so I'm going to jump around here a little bit. Uh, right. uh, 1980, you play a, a session on an album with the the late Jeff Beck, who just yeah. died this year. Yeah. To me, Beck has always been somewhat of an enigma. I mean, everyone can appreciate and respect the the magnificence of his talent, but he's you know it's just a, always seems like a like a very a private, maybe somewhat unapproachable type of guy too. Tell me what it was like to to work with with Jeff Beck back then. You, well, you're absolutely right. He was an enigma indeed. Um, I first met him in 1978, thanks to Max Middleton, who was his key play, keyboard player for many years. And he was looking for a new band. He was looking for a drummer and a bass player. So uh, I was invited down to his house in uh, East Sussex with John Giblin, who was the bass player with Simple Minds after, after one. We used to do a lot of sessions together. Uh, John, who also passed away last year, very, very sad, you know. Yeah. And so I, I arrived at the house. I had a little Ludwig drum kit and uh, I went in and I saw Jeff there and the, the manager was there said, and they introduced me. And Jeff, the first thing Jeff did was look at his hands, wipe them on his jeans because he had oil all over them from from working on his car right. and held out his hand. So I grabbed his hand and I wasn't afraid of a bit of oil, you know. And he went, oh, no. and that was it. I mean, nothing really, you know. So I set up my kit and he came in and put a guitar on and started playing. And and Max really kind of, uh, well, we've got this this tune here. So we just started playing. And uh, apparently I did okay, you know. Um, <laughs> the next thing I knew was a phone call to go into the studio with him and Jan Hammer. Could I come in the studio and an engineer? And I went, because I was the one doing all the you know, a lot of sessions. So I knew all the studios in London. And uh, I recommended Ramport, which was Pete Townsend's studio. It was the most rock and roll studio at the time. And an engineer called John Punter, who used to work at Air Studios, and he did every, you know, Roxy Music, and he mm -hmm. recorded every Nazareth. And we'd worked a lot, and I loved the way he made my kit sound. So we did it. I mean, <laughs> it was interesting. I mean, Jeff's very... Uh, he has to, you have to, he kind of waits for it to happen because he's not, he wasn't really a composer. Um, he needed other people to write the material, but once he got the material, then he made it his. And that, yeah. that was his, his thing, which was amazing. So, you know, it, it, it was an interesting way of, I'd never really worked with anybody like that before. Uh, and, and when we started, when Tony Hymas, so I introduced Tony Hymas to the band and, um, and he loved Tony. Totally got on with, with with him, and then I realized when we were down at his house once that uh, he needs music. Jan had written a few songs, but and we did record them, but he wasn't happy with all of them. Um, I think he did three on on the There and Back album, um, and I said to Tony, I said we need to write music, and I think I know exactly what he needs, 
I was getting a, a real feeling for for what Jeff wants. He he doesn't want to play fusion. He doesn't want to play jazz, but he really loves complex harmony. Mm-hmm. So he wants interesting adult chords, <laughs> but he wants a great melody. And that's with a lot of fusion, the melody it's it's he wants a rock and roll melody or a song melody as opposed to an angular kind of fusion type melody which which separates him from most jazz guitarists that we know so that's what we had to do we had to come up with very strong melodies melodies he could really get around and make it his you know and that's what we well i think that's what we did we would make a demo um i'd create a guitar sound with tony's synthesizer and run them through a pair of headphones distort the hell out of them put a microphone in it gaffer it and record that and that was our uh that was our guitar sound and and it was uh the the synthesizer was an arp odyssey that's what tony had at the time and then we'd take the demo to jeff on a cassette and he would sit there and slowly learn it and he would just repeat like the same phrase over and over again. But every time he played it, he was in a different position. He was doing something different with it. And he wasn't satisfied until he'd worked on it for like an hour. Wow. And then that's the first phrase. Like <laughs> we uh, like we wrote this song called um, The Golden Road. And Tony and I, he I would I think I wrote the da 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 da, just those four notes, really. And then he would go, da, 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 da. and I'd go, da, 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 da. and that's how we came up with it. So Jeff is just working on, da, 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 right? And he's working on it for an hour, trying to figure the best way of extracting that melody out wow. of his guitar. And that's what made him so special because he wouldn't give up until he was, he had a way of playing it that other guitarists would go, wow why didn't i think of that you know you you mentioned uh you know pete townsend a a moment ago and and you obviously you've done a lot of stuff with pete since uh since that and including touring with the who and replacing kenny jones you know i think the, the idea of you know filling tremendously large shoes for a band that has been so known for its drummers with keith moon and and then and then kenny we're when you were asked to join them on on their tour, and I think it was like the twentieth, twenty fifth anniversary of the Kids Are All Right tour, whatever it may have been, when you joined that tour, was the idea of filling these this looming shadow of great drummers difficult for you, or was it just like any other job that that you may have taken? It just happened to be the Who. Well, first of all, thank you for mentioning Kenny Jones because I've had so many people say oh yeah you know you took over from keith moon i went no no hang on a minute yeah kenny was in the band from um from uh 1979 uh, or 80 through to you know 85 when i think they did their last gig with with kenny um maybe because uh, pete started talking about it in 1987 when we were working on the iron man um but yeah it's it so it's very important to mention that i succeeded kenny jones not keith right and i think people kind of forget that um the first time i saw the who was actually with kenny playing i never saw the who with with keith and i loved it i thought he did a great job absolutely he sounded wonderful and i think after keith you know that was that was that period was was you know fantastic but you see 
filling in for another drummer. The, 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 I don't even think about the drummer or, or how he played. I think about the songs. So I just played the songs and yeah. always had them. And I think that's what Pete kind of really wanted. He, he, he didn't want, you know, he didn't want me to be a Keith Moon clone or, or Kenny Jones clone. He wanted me to play the way I play. And that's good. That's why he chose me. And, and so I always approached it music first because it's it's silly to try and copy someone else because well, you'll never do it well. Well, I've heard other interviews uh, where you've talked about that, you know, it's, especially when you joined Toto and, and literally were asked to join the band. I think it was like a week after you know Jeff Picaro had died. I mean, Jeff was the kind of drummer that people are trying people have taken the last 40 years to try to get that Rosanna halftime shuffle correct and that never even came close. Obviously, you're a different drummer, a different individual, and the guys in Toto, Lukather and, 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 and David Page knew that about you. You couldn't, no one could have been what Jeff Beccaro was for those songs, but you did exactly what you said. You let the song dictate how you're going to play. Yeah. And I think that's that's something that a lot of people may not have figured out when, it, when you know, you're comparing a Kenny Jones to a Keith Moon. They're not comparable experiences, and they have to figure out ways of making those songs part of their own repertoire of music. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, obviously, uh, I mean, the situation with Toto was they did not want somebody to come in and play like Jeff because they're a rock and roll band. Um, a lot of people, again, they're mistaken. They think Toto formed because they were session guys. But they were a band way before they started doing studio work back at school, in yeah. high school. They were playing. So they had the mentality. It was a rock men, a rock and roll band mentality, and they did not want um, basically, you know, a, more of a. They didn't want a session approach to playing the band, trying to recreate what they had before, um, which I think uh, I admire them for. I, uh, I think that was fantastic, even though I was very surprised when Steve Lukather called me because I thought. Toto? Me? Really? You know? But then when I heard the new album, Kingdom of Desire, I began to understand that they were changing their course a little bit and it was getting a little more rock and roll. Um, it was uh, it was only a four-piece then. Luke took over as lead singer. And, um, and so I could see the change and I could see... Uh, and Jeff was... Even Jeff's drum sound on that... Uh, on, on Kingdom of Desire was a little bit different. Bob Clear Mountain, I think, engineered quite a bit of it. Uh, he certainly mixed it. Um, so they were they, they were getting a, 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 it was a heavier rock sound than they had before. So that meant that I would fit in, you know, quite well looking at it like that. Um, and it worked and worked for 21 years. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, to me, it's always been, a, you know, Toto has always been like this, this kind of aberration where, yeah, they were studio musicians. I mean, they've been playing for a long time, but you know, a lot of people were like, "Well, can you can you be studio musicians and write songs? Can you?" I don't think any, regardless of what you may have felt about them, they still sold forty million records. I mean, it was just a remarkably successful band with with guys who were all remarkable musicians. Lukather's amazing. You know, David Page is a great songwriter. I mean, just unbelievable talent in that band that I I think in in many ways goes underappreciated for what they really were yeah I, I i agree i agree it's uh it's a shame how you know some people you know really knock knock the band sometimes we've had some great reviews <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
as I said earlier, it, uh, you know, I've been a fan for a very long time. So to 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 get a chance to to talk to you, I I. I I have like drumming questions that could take another hour and a half, but you know, <laughs> I'll spare you, spare you the fanboy stuff uh, for a bit. But uh, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Best of luck with the uh, with the live album, uh, the Sharinian Phillips live. It's really, really good, Simon, and I and I appreciate you you joining me today. Great, lovely. Thank you very much. So seriously, I have spoken to Simon Phillips for a few more hours. The name of the new album is called Sharinian Phillips Live. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, feel free to like it, share it, tell all your friends about it. Be sure to follow the podcast on all the socials, and you can email me at Bax at rock102.com. I'd love to know what you think. Thanks again for listening to Baxi's Musical Podcast.